who's going to make decisions for children. Sometimes people try and say, oh, it's a conflict between children and parents. No, children and our laws reflect this and everyone knows this. They're impressionable. They need someone to come alongside them and guide them and lead them. And it's really a question, who's it going to be? Will it be government officials, government bureaucrats, even well-meaning government officials like public school teachers, or will it be moms and dads? Hi, you're listening to the Zan Tyler Podcast. Hi, my name is Zan Tyler, and this podcast is brought to you by BJU Press Homeschool. Homeschooling is an exciting adventure we take with our children. One of the most challenging parts of this journey is choosing the curriculum you want to use. BJU Press Homeschool is a curriculum you can trust. All the books, resources, and videos have been designed with you and your child in mind. Their curriculum is educationally robust and rich, taking into account that children have different learning styles, strengths, and needs. Mom, you are in charge. BJU Press Homeschool is here to come alongside and support you. Do you need help with the teaching load, or is there a subject you just don't want to teach? Their amazing video courses are available for all grades in almost every subject. BJU Press Homeschool believes that homeschooling can produce a new generation of students who know God, love their neighbors, and stand firm in their faith. For more information, go to BJUPressHomeschool.com. That's BJUPressHomeschool.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zan Tyler podcast. I'm your host, Zan Tyler. Before we get into our amazing interview today with Will Estrada, I just want to remind you to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, and please leave us a review. It really helps. This podcast is devoted to encouraging you in your homeschooling journey through conversations with homeschool leaders and advocates. Today, it is my real pleasure to talk with Will. Will Estrada began his career with Homeschool Legal Defense Association that we'll refer to after this as HSLDA. He served with the Office for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He was a bureaucrat, but my favorite bureaucrat. Uh, In November 2021, Will was selected by the Board of ParentalRights.org to serve as the first full-time president. So that's very exciting. Will is also a homeschool dad and a second-generation homeschooler. Will, thank you so much for being with us here today. Oh, Zan, this is an incredible honor, so thanks for having me on. So I was trying to think when we met for the first time, I think it was... It might have been earlier than 2007, 2008. I remember I was actually the national grassroots director for parentalrights.org in 2007 and 2008. And I don't, were you a lobbyist at that time for HSLDA? I was. I started in 2006. So I think I met you in 2006. At the very latest, it would have been 2007. So, yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So we go way back and our way backness. You were much younger than I was when we met. And uh, so listen, well, you have such a fascinating story. So before we get into all the amazing things you're doing with parental rights, I'd love to hear your story, what it was like for you being homeschooled and then tell us your own journey with your own family now. Oh, absolutely, Zan. So, so I really started off. This was this was in upstate New York in the late 1980s. My parents actually started homeschooling me a year after homeschooling became legal in the in the state of New York. And so, when you think about 
where we've come in in homeschooling, it was illegal in most of the 50 states for quite some time until the 70s and 80s, until the work of Homeschool Legal Defense Association and you in South Carolina and so many just uh, patriots and pioneers of homeschooling who really led to where it is today, where it's not only legal, it's just common. So my my parents um, were were not Christians. My dad, dad actually was a drug addict. My mom was a non-practicing Catholic. They came to Christ uh, right after I was born, and that really revolutionized their life and changed it. And they said, we want our children to get an education that reflects their, our, our religious beliefs and that God is the creator and sustainer of everything. So they were looking at, at private schools, but my dad was a special ed teacher for the state of New York, and they couldn't afford a private school. So they started looking at homeschooling, and this was back in the days of Mary Pride and Mike Ferris just starting homeschooling. And so they fell in love with that. They started us off. Uh, and eventually, not only was I homeschooled and graduated from homeschooling, but they homeschooled all of my seven siblings as well. So big Puerto Rican Italian family, eight kids homeschooling all of us. My mom gave up her career at IBM. She was pretty high up, actually, even back then in the uh, late 70s and early 1980s to stay home and homeschool us. Dad continued as a special ed teacher, but then he was very engaged in our education. And first in New York and then later on in rural Pennsylvania, that's that's how we were homeschooled. We had a pretty rigorous classical education homeschool program. Which which worked so well that when I graduated from high school, I actually skipped undergrad, went to a predominantly correspondence-based law school program. So I never did the four years of undergrad, went straight into law school from from my homeschool program. And I didn't graduated. realize that. Okay, I, I did hear that you were offered several scholarships at major law schools that you turned yeah, down. Yeah, so I had, a, I had a full tuition. Yeah, I had a full tuition right at Princeton. I had one at uh, Messiah College in Pennsylvania. And even back then, I was like, well, even though I'll get a full tuition ride, I'd still have to pay for room and board. And that can run up into the tens and fifteens of thousands of dollars. I, you know, growing up with not very much, eight kids who lived in a double wide, dad was a public school teacher, mom stayed home to homeschool us. Even then I knew the value of money and really didn't want to get into debt. This was back in 2001 when I graduated from high school. And so I was intrigued by the ability to go straight into law school. The program I used, it was called Oak Brook College of Law. It's still around. It's based in California, but California doesn't require uh, four years of undergrad. They require two years of undergrad and they allow students to meet that if they scored a high enough level on the college level examination program or CLEP tests. So right out of high school, I, I took those CLEP tests. I, I scored very well. Um, God was good to me and, and my parents gave me a great education and was able to avoid those two years of college. So never did any undergrad and then went straight into law school graduated with my Juris Doctor degree, um, you know, passed the California bar, and uh, and the rest is history. Well, that's pretty amazing. I want to talk to you about one part of your homeschooling journey, and that's speech and debate. Now, I know when my kids, when my kids came through, because we were homeschooling them um, in the 80s, we didn't have a big speech and debate movement at that time, but I think that really contributed to some of your success as an adult. Would you tell us about that? 
Well, I would absolutely agree. And it's funny how we got involved in that because we grew up in rural Pennsylvania on the top of a mountain in a double wide, you know, raising sheep and raising goats. Um, there was no uh, sport activity of where homeschoolers could participate in, in sports at all. There weren't even a lot of homeschoolers around. We had to drive 40 minutes to our homeschool uh, support group and homeschool co-op meetings. But my parents always, even from an early year, early years of homeschooling knew that it's so important to give kids an opportunity to give speeches and to and to give presentations kind of override that that fear of public speaking and so from the earliest i can remember even when i was 7 years old we were at giving history fairs and science fairs and then when we moved to pennsylvania that kind of fell away because it was harder to get into those but then when i was in high school the uh, the uh, homeschool legal defense actually started a high school speech and debate league. This was before the days of NCFCA or STOA or some of the big homeschool high school debate leagues. And it was Christy Scheip, who's Mike Ferris's Mike oldest Ferris's daughter, daughter that's exactly, right. who was really leading that. And my parents, as members of Homeschool Legal Defense, would get the Court Report magazine, and they saw that information, and they said, this looks like it would be really interesting. And of course, as teenagers, we we liked to argue. Uh, even from a <laughs> young age, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, Zan, and uh, and so I was I was doing Mike Ferris's constitutional law course. My my dad always encouraged me being like, you should, you should be a lawyer. I wish I had been a lawyer. I ended up being a public school teacher and it's kind of a, a trope in literature and, and movies about a dad pressuring his son to do something, but I really wanted <laughs> to be a lawyer. And, uh, and I was, I love that as well. And so my parents found a debate uh, league. The closest one was five hours away, just outside of Philadelphia in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. And so when I was 16 years old, my brothers and I, we, we basically just taught ourselves reading Christy Scheip's book on, on debate. We didn't really know how to make debates, but we liked to talk. We, we were kind of funny, funny speakers. And so we did this debate. We wrote our, our, our speeches and our pro and con and the, and the uh, topic in 1999 that when HSLDA was still doing this was resolved that the United States federal campaign finance reform laws should be substantially uh, changed. And so we had a, uh, you know, one one argument and then the negative argument. And we went into this debate. We just had a lot of fun and we qualified for nationals. We won the debate tournament in the very first debate round we, we were ever at. So yeah, this we had was a great, you and your brother. You and this your brother. was my brother. So my brother, Jordan, and me, I was 16. He was 14. We'd never been to a debate tournament in our life. Just kind okay, of I got to interrupt you here and just let people know that those debate tournaments are highly competitive. I mean, they are highly competitive. And so for you and your brother just to kind of waltz in and win it, that's pretty amazing. Uh, we, I think we kind of shocked everyone there. There were coaches and there were people and they're like, who are your coach? And we were like, uh, dad and mom, there are coaches. And, uh, but we had a lot of fun. We were quoting movies, we were quoting Shakespeare. And I think the judges just, enjoyed it so much because they were just cracking up at it that that helped us and and it really gave us a love for debate so all of my siblings and i we went through debate all through our high school years one thing zane i just really want to say that's so good about debate and um, especially for classical education folks will understand this but it really for the high school years allows everything to be tied in research writing um literature so kind of that 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 full uh scope of education 
and it, it prepared me so much for what I do even today of, of spe- speaking with elected officials and research and and presenting a, a specific position. So I I love high school debate, and I think it really turned me into the person I am today. You know, Will, you are such a testimony because I know you ha- you loved your family. Your family wasn't perfect. Y'all had a lot of things you had to work through, and yet you got this unbelievable education and were unbelievably close as a family. And I just think we need to know as homeschool parents, we don't have to be perfect. We just need to be there with our kids and provide the opportunities for them to learn. Zan, I think that's so true, and uh, and uh, I saw that firsthand in my family growing up. Um, but even even now, I see it. Uh, as you mentioned in in the bio, I was homeschooled. My wife was homeschooled uh, after first grade all the way through as well. And we're homeschooling our kids today. We live in Loudoun County in Northern Virginia, which for the longest time was known as one of the best public school systems. And then lately, when I mentioned that I live in Loudoun County, people start rolling their eyes and they're like, oh, I'm very sorry for you because many people have seen our uh, school board in action on on the nightly news and it's not always very pretty. Um, So we're homeschooling our kids and, and you really realize when you're a parent and you're homeschooling that there's there's a lot you need to know and a lot you should do differently and you really at least for me it's it's you know daily need god's grace in this but i think there's also just something that sometimes parents can overthink this of it's you know your children better than anyone else does mm-hmm. and you're around them you know their learning styles and especially at the younger years our our kids right now are 10 and 5 two boys they they want to be around us and they enjoy being around us and it really is a beautiful time of being able to to use the curriculum to educate them and to see that love of learning that's happening right there in our living room and in our dining room when we're doing these homeschooling and so it's 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 something we've loved and it was funny you know as as my wife and I both kind of homeschool graduates we went into this just saying, all right, we're just going to start it off, see how it goes, and we'll use the public school if, if, it, if it doesn't work out. And our kids have loved it, we've loved it, and we really have seen how God has used it just in our own family. So now Dominic, your oldest, is he the STEM kid, the one that loves math so much? So Dominic is our 10-year-old, and he certainly is our STEM kid. And it's funny because when when I was being homeschooled, people would ask, well, what's your favorite subject? And I would say, well, reading, which I don't know if reading is exactly a subject, but I love to read. And Dominic, it's been a little worrying to me, actually, because he really does not like to read. It's it's kind of pulling teeth, and but he loves math. He loves science. He loves doing things with his hands. He loves his Legos and 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 building kind of scientific creations with them. Uh, so he is our STEM kid. He um, he really loves that. And then it's interesting too because Merrick, our five year old, he really enjoys math as well. So our our kids are are you know acing their their math and um, you know we're trying to be like all right you have to read now before you go play with your Legos, which is a very much a reversal of where I was as a as a kid. Uh, we we hated math, which is why I became a lawyer. <laughs> well, you know, it was funny. I was listening to your um, podcast with Jim Mason, who is the president of HSLDA, because I love both you and Jim. And it was you were talking about how you have to say, no, we're going to do 
our schoolwork first, and then you can play with Legos. But I have a funny story to tell you. Michelle Moody, whom I used to work with, is uh, and she's real into science and robotics. She started out as a developmental um, educator. And she said that her son, all he wanted to do was play with Legos and build ro- robots and draw robots with laser eyes. And it was always getting him in trouble at homeschool co-ops. <laughs> and he's, she said, lo and behold, he's this engineer. Uh, Michelle developed the robotics program in North Carolina or was essential in that process. And all the x-ray eyes he used to draw, he works in x-ray functioning now for machines and robots. So it's pretty incredible what these kids do. You know, and the future is technology anyway with, with uh, you know, STEM and, and robotics and all of this. So it's, it's probably good that our kids enjoy the, yes, the science, technology, the engineering side of things. So it's, it's uh, you know, they, they obviously have to learn all of these. So, uh, so I'm glad that, that I like to read so I, can, so I can encourage that in my son. But it is really inspiring to see he's better than I was at that, at that age on, on mathematics. And that's, that's really good. Well, listen, let's talk for a minute about your career, because when you first went, when you first applied to HSLDA, I guess you were already a graduate from Oak Brook. You were denied. So, so that is correct. So at the very start, so I, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, with Oak Brook, I was doing it correspondence. So I, there was an opening in the court report for a legal assistant at Homeschool Legal Defense. And I applied and got that rejection letter. This was in 2003. And I was, I was very crestfallen. I said, well, you know, that's, that's kind of sad. And then it's really interesting, Zan, because I am, I was, feeling burned out with law school. This was, this, we lived in, in, on the border with New York. And so the 9-11 terror attacks of September 11th, 2001 were, were very impactful for me. A lot of my friends had, uh, had enlisted in the military. Of course, you know, the wars were going on in Iraq and, or in Afghanistan. And then in 2003, the war began in Iraq. And so I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to put my law school career on hold. Uh, HSLDA didn't want me. I'm going to join the military. And so with a, with a couple of years of law school and, and ace the ASVAB test that the military had, the recruiters just desperately wanted me. And so I said, you know, I'm going to go home and pray about this over Christmas break, and then I'll get back to you. And uh, randomly over that Christmas vacation in the winter of, of 2003, Scott Woodruff, who's a senior senior counsel at Homeschool Legal Defense, emailed me out of the blue. This is six months after I was rejected from HSLDA and said, we just had a legal assistant leave all of a sudden. We still have your resume on file. Would you like to come work at HSLDA? And if so, could you start next week? And it was one of those things that was as clear of a you know sign from God as, as I've ever seen in my life. And so the rest is history. I... I um, Continued my law school. I, I went down, started in, on January 5th, 2004, as a legal assistant to Scott Woodruff at the Homeschool Legal Defense Association and um, um, you know, served there for two and a half years, finished law school, and then an opening came up to be the director of federal relations, which lobbies for all homeschoolers on, on Capitol at Hill. HSLDA. At HSLDA. At HSLDA, yes. correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on Capitol Hill. And, and so I applied for that and and just fresh out of law school, got hired to be HSLDA's federal lobbyist. 
And, you know, Will, you did a fabulous job with that. That is when I first met you. And I was up working on some project in Washington, D.C., and I remember meeting you for the first time and how impressive that was and what a passion and a knowledge you had at your at your age. That That's pretty amazing. So then you, um, so you stayed in that position for how long? So I was there for 12 years. And, and you know, Zan, one of those things is growing up as a homeschooler, I remember, I think I was 10 years old in uh, 2000 or 1993 when George Miller, a, a congressman from California, put in the uh, in um, the Miller Amendment in H.R. 6, which would have yes. pretty much ended homeschooling. I mean, you remember that very well. I remember well. It, it, it did. It had the capacity to end homeschooling one bill. Yes. And what it was, was it was a federal bill that would have said that teachers need to be certified in um, every subject that they teach and every grade level that they teach. And it was Dick Armey. He was a congressman. He went on later to become the um, majority leader in in the House of Representatives. He said, well, let's just clarify that this would only apply to public schools, not homeschools and private schools. And that amendment was defeated. And that kind of put the homeschool community and Mike Farris and you and others on DEFCON 1 that this could, you know, if you were, if you required every teacher, including homeschool parents to be certified in every subject that they teach in every grade level, that would end homeschooling. There might be one out of a million parents, because even public school teachers, very few They're not certified in every subject. That's right. And every grade level, exactly. Uh, And so, so many homeschoolers called Capitol Hill. I remember, you know, 10-year-old, the news story, my parents called constantly. The news had the busy signal of of Washington, D.C. being shut down. And remember, this was back in the Yes, we we shut down the um, the phone system at on Capitol Hill, and that's when I bought my first fax machine because we were faxing so many things. Our state superintendent was actually helping us with this education, and we were faxing back and forth and faxing congressmen. It was pretty amazing. It, it was something to behold. And so that was what I remembered as just a 10-year-old. And so going in and, and being the lobbyist for HSLDA, and, and basically we had a very simple message. It was leave homeschoolers alone at the federal level. Uh, uh, we don't want Washington, D.C. We don't want your money. We don't want your regulation. Just leave us alone. We don't alone. even want right. protection because then later <laughs> on that could, that could lead to regulation. It was just leave us alone. This is not the role of the federal government. And so it was, it was something that I was very passionate about, and I loved those 14 years of uh, representing homeschoolers on, on Capitol Hill. We fought UN treaties successfully. We, we defeated um, ratification of UN treaties that would put best interests of the child over parental rights uh, in, in all issues concerning kids, um, put in significant protections to make sure that, that none of the federal, like No Child Left Behind wording would apply to homeschoolers, just completely exempted homeschoolers out of all of that. Um, and so for for 12 years, I uh, I did that over at Homeschool Legal Defense and was it was incredible. Loved, loved hey, every hey, minute of it. Before we leave this part of the conversation, I remember you telling me when you were a little boy, your mom or, or probably 10, your mother gave you a speech you were supposed to give if somebody ever came to the door and she wasn't home. And it kind of comes full circle with all your work. But you have to tell us what she told you. 
Yeah, so I'll give the I'll give the background on it. Um, you know, we started homeschooling in upstate New York right the year after homeschooling became legal in New York, and um, my mom is Italian, my dad is Puerto Rican, uh, and so my mom's side of the family, the the Italian grandparents were extremely hostile to homeschooling. They said, "You're going to ruin your children's lives," and my my parents were very scared that they were going to hotline. Um, our family and, and call CPS. And and back then, it's pretty much gone away now, but back then, uh, social workers would really, um, if you were homeschooling your kids, that would be an area of concern. Now, so many people homeschool, and because of the work of HSLDA and, and people like you, Zan, uh, to protect homeschooling, that's very rare to have happen now with, with social worker investigations. But back in the late 80s, early 90s, that was actually very common. And so my mom drilled into us as kids, she said, if ever a social worker comes to the door, you just say, Mike Ferris is my lawyer, and I'm not going to talk to you until you get him on the phone. And so that was kind of the the, the little uh, memorized speech that we had to say if ever a social worker came to our door, but never happened. Um, when I graduated from high school, actually, my uh, Italian grandparents all said, we always knew homeschooling was the best thing. <laughs> so my mom was there wondering to herself, like, well, I, I remember the hostility you had there. But I think a lot of people can can identify with that of of relatives um, who, who are not as keen on homeschooling. And then the Absolutely. proof is in the pudding. Yes, yes, the proof is definitely in the pudding and homeschoolers are doing very well by all accounts. So, okay, tell us what happened. What, what caused you to leave HSLDA? So um, I was I was on the transition team uh, for the Trump campaign in 2016. So so hopefully people won't get really mad at me for that. Um, but I was working on education uh, side over at Department of Education, and um, you know I I I'll, I don't think the Department of Education is constitutional. I think uh, Amen, you know obviously you. Yeah. yeah it was it was Jimmy Carter who um, actually created it as a. Um, standalone federal department and it was a gift to the you teachers know, unions and and that's important to remember because we tend to think in this country that public schooling has been around since 1776 and the declaration of independence and that and that the the department of education has always been a, a cabinet level position and that's not true so it's interesting that you remind us that that happened under jimmy carter you know, Zan, the very first public school program in our country was 1649. It was the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and it was created under an act called the Old Deluder Satan Act. And our listeners can Google it, Old Deluder Satan Act. And the very first words of that act, 1649, first creation of a public school, was – because of our old deluder, Satan, who wants to delude the minds of young people, we need children to be able to read the Bible so they won't be deluded. And so it was a requirement that if a, a, a township had, I think, more than 50 households, they had to have um, a, a publicly funded school. But that's the history of, of – that was the start of public education in our country, and it's heartbreaking to kind of see – where we've gone from that. But for the longest time, these were just little town run schools. There were dame schools. Uh, there was the one room schoolhouse. It wasn't really until the, the, um, 20th century, early 20th century, that you really began to see massive public schools. It was based on the Prussian influence and Horace Mann. And even back then, there were threats to parental rights. I mean, the very first case that said that parents have a fundamental right to direct the education 
and upbringing of their children was Meyer versus Nebraska, which which was in 1923, which came out of a law in Nebraska saying that parents couldn't uh, teach their children in a different language. There's a lot of xenophobia, actually. And uh, Mr. Meyer was a one-room schoolhouse teacher teaching a young German immigrant how to read out of the German Bible. He was prosecuted, and the U.S. Supreme Court overturned that. And then two years later, in 1925, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, that was Oregon had passed a law banning private education. And so um, – but but yeah, so so that's the history and, and of public education. The great thing that came out – I mean, the, there were many great things that came out of that Pierce versus Society. Society of Sisters ruling, but the the statement I love the most is that children are not the mere creatures of the state. You know, I've actually got the the sentence here, and I'm I'm going to read it. And this is 1925, the case of Pierce versus Society of Sisters. Quote: The fundamental theory of liberty upon which all governments in this union repose excludes any general power of the state to standardize its children by forcing them to accept instruction from public teachers only. And here's the, the sentence you, you just mentioned. The child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right, coupled with the high duty, to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations, end quote. That is amazing. I have to I have one of my favorite stories circles around the passage you just read. I was speaking to a young leaders uh, con- consortium in South Carolina, and they had somebody from public schools, private schools, and I was the homeschool representative. So one woman from the audience raises her hand and said, Miss Tyler, don't you feel guilty for homeschooling? And I said, well, you know, I felt a lot of emotion over homeschooling. I don't know that guilt is one of them. Why? And she said, well, you're robbing the public school system of the money they would get for your kids. You're robbing the public school system of two parents who were involved in their kids' education. We need families like that. And she had a third thing that I can't remember. And I, I looked at her and I said, so who do you think my kids belong to anyway? And she got real quiet. This tells you what my life was like in 1990 when I think this happened. I happened to have that ruling from the the Supreme Court in my purse because I carried it around with me. And um, I said, so let me read you this. And she looked at me and she said, well, where did you get that? Like, where did you get that right wing propaganda? And I said, well, from the United States Supreme Court. And it dawned on me there then, Will, that... We, if, if people in this country don't know that our children don't belong to the government, we have a problem. And that's why we have a fight for parental rights. It's not just government. It's a whole citizenry who doesn't understand that our kids are not the creature of the state. Excuse me, that was a long story, but it's just so illustrative of that point. You know, that segues so much into what I'm doing now, but let me just back up and answer your your question of, of how I ended up leaving homeschool legal defense. So I was on the transition team. Um, no one expected Donald Trump to get elected, and then he he was. And so I was offered a um, a position as a political at U.S. Department of Education. This would come in um, part of the, the political leadership in, in the federal agencies you have the political um, who come in with the president, and then you have the career bureaucrats, uh, career civil servants who are there. Um, And I really struggled with it because I would have loved to have done that, but I really don't like U.S. Department of Education. I think it's unconstitutional. But then it was an easy decision because our first son, Dominic, uh, my wife had had a lot of complications. Um, She'd almost died. uh, He was was born two pounds and spent uh, two months in the NICU. 
and we were expecting our second son, Merrick, uh, in just in March of 2017. So I was like, there's really no way I could be a good political and a good husband and dad with all of that coming up. So I, I turned it down and, and then, you know, had a lot of regret because not not regret. I'm, I'm glad I was home, but um, just seeing the good work that a lot of my friends were doing who were political appointees. And I'm like, oh, I guess I missed the boat. And then in 2018, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the uh, Trump administration started what was called the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division. And mm-hmm. um, they were looking to hire uh, career staff to staff that up, basically enforcing conscience laws, pro-life laws uh, that had been on the books since the 70s, bipartisan laws, but which had never been enforced. And um, I, I got a call from someone saying, look, if you apply, you'll probably get it. And so I went ahead and applied, was accepted. And this was, you know, it's why you should never say I'll never do something because uh, God is a sense of humor. I always said I'll never be a bureaucrat. And so there I was, I, I got hired. I was actually the third uh, career civil service um, person hired in the new conscience and religious freedom division at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in the Office for Civil Rights. So I, I said farewell, um, um, maybe a, a little tears as well, because I loved homeschool legal defense so much, but said farewell and um, then worked as a bureaucrat for almost four years in in HHS. We were there through the pandemic, uh, did a lot of, of really cool work protecting conscience in the areas of healthcare. And then the administration changed. And, uh, you know, I, I strongly feel that unelected civil service workers uh, should not be a deep state and resist and do all that. But but I'll be honest, Dan, it was it was getting harder and harder. I, I was on a team. Well, I'll just say I was working on some some high profile issues that are in the news daily right now that that I felt as a Christian, it was very difficult for me to do that. And um, but yet, you know, I, I, I said I'm paid by the taxpayers. I have to be serving them. But it got to the point of where I said, I don't think I can do this in good conscience anymore. So I began looking elsewhere. And then Glenn Youngkin got elected in Virginia in 2021. And the day as after, the governor. As the governor of Virginia, uh, riding that wave of parental rights, remember Terry McAuliffe in that debate over the summer of 2021, it said, I don't think parents should be involved in their children's education in the public schools. And Glenn Youngkin hammered Terry McAuliffe on that. And so riding that wave of parental rights, um, Glenn Youngkin got elected as governor of Virginia in a huge upset. And the very next day, it was a Wednesday, my phone rings and it's Jim Mason on the other line. And, and Jim was... Uh, not yet the president of HSLDA at the time. He was he was executive vice president, um, but he was he was um, running um, Parental Rights Foundation and ParentalRights.org as the uh, volunteer kind of part time president. And he said, "Will uh, we're looking for a full time president? I think parental rights are the big issue now. If you want it, resign from the federal government, and I think the board will approve you." And so I I. Thought about it for a few minutes and said, I think this is um, a very clear sign from God. And so tendered my uh, resignation from a career civil service employee in in the federal government and came on as the first full-time president of Parental Rights Foundation and ParentalRights.org. Well, that is so exciting, Will, because this is, I've been, because you're such a good friend and I'm interested in what you're doing. And I think what you're doing is essential. I've been keeping up with you a little bit in the news. Um, I saw that there was an article in the New York Times and the Washington Post when you took over that position. I haven't, I just found those last night when I was um, looking for something that you had written. And so I hadn't gotten through them, but they seemed very positive in the beginning. 
which was amazing. But I love um, some of the things they said. Then the New York Times, parental rights is a term that burst into the public consciousness in uh, recent years. This year alone, 82 bills have been introduced in 26 states under the banner of parental rights. And they talk about what those, what the issues are. So it really is an issue whose time has come. I think when you started talking about parental rights, and this was in the um, Washington uh, Post, they said you spoke about it for the first time in 2009 and had six people in your breakout session or something because people just weren't interested in the topic. I know that. That's about when I started working, you know, as the national grassroots director. So, so tell us in the time we have remaining, just tell us a little bit about what parental rights involves and what you're doing to make that an issue and make sure we keep our parental rights in this country. So when you say parental rights, sometimes people get confused about it, but here's what at its heart it really is. Who is going to make decisions for children? Sometimes people try and say, oh, it's a conflict between children and parents. No, children, and, and our laws reflect this, and everyone knows this, they're, they're impressionable. They need someone to come alongside them and guide them and lead them. And it's really a question, who's it going to be? Will it be government officials, government bureaucrats, even well-meaning government officials like, like public school teachers, or will it be moms and dads? And for the longest time in our country, in our history, even in just, uh, you know, world history and, and the great philosophers, even Aristotle, who said that the family is the foundation of, of civilization, this has not been an issue of debate. Right. Uh, but recently it really has become one. And it's funny how the Washington Post quoted that story. And, and you remember that, too, that, you know, parentalrights.org was founded in 2007. And really, uh, aside from homeschoolers who remember the battles to ensure that we had the freedom to be able to choose how to educate our children, nobody really cared about parental rights. They, I, I would talk because I was the lobbyist for HSLDA, but I would do a lot of support for parentalrights.org. And people would always say, oh, our parental rights are protected. We don't need to worry about that. You're kind of a solution in search of a problem. And then the pandemic hit. And everything that happened with public education since. And so it really is an exciting time. It, it really is kind of sometimes a, a scary time when you see these debates that we're having of how fast it seems like the national consciousness has changed on some of these issues. But it's it's so critical because if we as parents cannot be the ones to care for, raise, educate, be there for our children, if we're pushed out of the way by the government, then society as we know it will not last. And I strongly believe right. that. And Amen. so and so that's why I'm I'm so passionate to be here doing this work. We we are a national organization headquartered in Northern Virginia. And over the past decade or so, we've been doing a lot of work quietly. For example, in 2013, parentalrights.org worked with our friends in the Virginia legislature uh, to pass a fundamental parental rights statute. No one ever heard about that. No one even knew that statute was on the books until Governor Glenn Youngkin was elected. And suddenly he's mentioning it in his executive order on mask mandates, not saying you can't get uh, schools can't have masks on kids, but that parents need to be the ones to decide it. He's mentioning it in his model policies on, on school books and on issues that, that affect children in the public school classroom. And 
that was our bill that we did almost 10 years ago that's been kind of sitting on the books quietly until until it it was it was sort of found by the elected officials last year in florida they passed a comprehensive parents bill of rights and that was based upon our model legislation that um, has been has been drafted for many years from parentalrights.org and the Parental Rights Foundation. And now we're seeing those parents' bills of rights really taking off across the country. What One of the things that we're doing is working in all 50 states to try to ensure that parental rights, that the right of parents to direct the education, upbringing, and care of their children as a fundamental right, which is the highest level of protection in our mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. in our republican form of democracy in our constitutional system that it's codified in state law in all 50 states currently 15 states have these fundamental parental rights statutes we're already talking to legislators in mississippi and new hampshire and south dakota and louisiana and iowa and wyoming in pennsylvania maryland and indiana and missouri our volunteers are on the ground and they've let us know they're talking to these legislators and these are all states where that don't currently have fundamental parental rights statutes, but they're going to be coming in the 2023 legislative session. So it's it's busy. Uh, last year, I testified um, before the legislatures in, in the states of Pennsylvania and South Dakota and New Hampshire and Colorado on these fundamental parental rights statutes. We're doing a ton of legal research to support our friends uh, and legislators who are introducing these bills. So that's our state strategy. And then Let at me the ask, national can I, level, can I interrupt yeah, you just and ask you a question? So, in a state like Pennsylvania, if they enacted a parental rights um, law or bill or uh, amendment at the state level, would that help get a better, or would that lay the groundwork for ushering in a better homeschool law, or not necessarily? So that is a really good question, and the context of that is that both Pennsylvania and New York have some of the strictest homeschool laws in the nation. Uh, I, I was homeschooled in both of those, so so saw firsthand. And the the law, the um, bill that's been introduced in Pennsylvania that I testified on, it it says that the right of parents to direct the education, upbringing, and care of their children is a fundamental right. It doesn't talk about homeschooling, so by itself, it wouldn't allow. Um, it wouldn't allow it wouldn't change the homeschool law in Pennsylvania, but here's how it could have an impact. If a um, if a uh, school district were to crack down on a on a particular parent, for example, they would then respond by saying, well, Pennsylvania just passed this law that says that my parental rights are fundamental. I'm choosing to homeschool them, our kids. You are trying to interfere with a fundamental right that I have. And so the burden would then be on the Pennsylvania state government or the school district to show that their restriction or law or policy is applied to the parent is what's called the least restrictive means not otherwise served. So they would have to show that the government has what's called a compelling state interest to to, um, do this. And so it would provide a great protection for the family. It would still end up in court if a a family were to challenge – um, Pennsylvania's homeschool law, then there would be that balancing test of of does Pennsylvania have a compelling state interest to have this strict homeschool law? I I don't know the answer to that, but I think laws like these would certainly help homeschool parents, would help private school parents, would help public school parents to be able to have more say in their children's education. One of the other issues we work on a lot is is child protective services and protecting innocent families and abuse and neglect investigations, oftentimes being hotlined either an anonymous tip by a grouchy neighbor or a relative. And Mm -hmm. these fundamental parental rights laws would also protect innocent families and the integrity of their family in some of these investigations as well. So that's a great question, Zan. 
Um, well, listen, uh, go ahead and finish up because I really want to hear what the, the not the agenda, but your goals are as uh, nationally or federally. Yeah, and then our national work, and all of this is under the umbrella of our mission and our vision, is the best way to protect children is by empowering parents. And so it's our mm-hmm. state fundamental parental Amen. rights statutes. It's reining in um, some of these child protective service uh, state agencies to protect innocent families and, and children and parents. And then at the federal level, our top priority is amending the United States Constitution to put into the black and white of the U.S. Constitution that parental rights are a fundamental right. So it's called the Parental Rights Amendment. You can read it if you go to parentalrights.org. It's been recently reintroduced by Representative Debbie Lesko from Arizona. She's a mom. She's a member of Congress. It's been reintroduced as House Joint Resolution 99. And so we are working to get co-sponsors in the next Congress. We're already talking about committee hearings, potentially even sending this to the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. And essentially what it would do is take the 100-year precedent. We talked about that case, Pierce versus Mm -hmm. Society Mm -hmm. of Sisters. The child is not the mere creature of the state, taking that precedent and putting it into the black and white of the U.S. Constitution. Wow. Those are those are exciting things that are happening, Will. Well, how can people, if they are interested in uh, being a part of what you're doing at parentalrights.org, how can they find you or how can they find your organization to get involved? Well, Zan, we we have an energetic group of state coordinators. You can find out information. Our, our two web pages are parentalrights.org. That's kind of our lobbying arm, and then parentalrightsfoundation.org. That's our tax exempt, um, you know, tax deductible work such as legal work, litigation. We just won a big lawsuit against the District of Columbia. Um, our model legislation as well, as well. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. So it's parental rights. People can follow follow me uh, at uh, Will underscore Estrada on Twitter. And it really is. We are. We've been around for 15 years to defend that God-given fundamental right of parents, both at at the state level, at the local level, at the federal level, uh, in the media as well. We do research. We do surveys. And we'd love to have – we're always looking for more volunteers to join us at the state level. I mean, Zan, you were one of the best volunteers we ever had in South Carolina. And, and, um, you know, I don't know if all of our listeners know this, but the reason that South Carolina has such a good homeschool law is really because of you and your work uh, decades ago to pave that way for, for parents today in South Carolina. Well, thanks, Will. And listen, thank you so much for all of your work. And thank you for your time today. Give Rachel and the boys our love. And I hope, hope you'll come back and be with us again. I, I would love to be on. I'm, I'm so grateful for what you're doing, Zan, and for the chance to come on the Zan Tyler podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this was encouraging and inspiring for you. If you would like more information, you can find me at zantyler.com. Until next time, see you later.